Well, although we have been in the Gospel of Luke for quite some time, we're not going to be looking at Luke this morning. Rather, if you would turn with me to Paul's epistle to the Galatians, we're going to take a look at one particular phrase that Paul uses here in verse 4, but I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 7. Galatians chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Father, we once again come to you as we always do, admitting our dependence upon you for the understanding of your word. May the spirit who dwells within your people illumine it for us, May your spirit be our teacher, and Father, may you open hearts to the truth of the gospel this morning. For Christ's sake, amen. The great message of the Christian faith can be found in the declaration that God was manifest in the flesh, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that Jesus Christ was incarnate God, fully man, and yet somehow also fully God. That is the center of our faith. Everything else derives from that truth. God became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus came, and history itself has been changed forever. For a little over 30 years, the Son of God walked on this earth, and nothing has been the same since. He came, and in his coming, time itself was split in two. All history and all eternity hinges upon what happened in Bethlehem on a bleak midwinter night. 20 centuries ago. As Paul contemplates these things, he invites us to consider God's timing. He speaks of the coming of God into the world in terms of the fullness of time. If I might draw your attention to verse 4 of Galatians chapter 4, Paul says, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, 
so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. That phrase, when the fullness of time came, is a very picturesque Greek expression. It speaks of something that is complete, something that is fully developed, like a ripe apple ready to be picked, or like a pregnant woman feeling labor pains ready to deliver her baby. It describes a moment in history when all things are finally in place, when all the pieces are on the board, that one moment when the stage is perfectly set. At that moment, not a moment earlier, not a moment later, God sent forth his son. In the fullness of time, in the perfection of time, at just the right time. And God's timing is perfect. We know that because we know what God has said about himself in the scriptures. He's never early, he's never late, yet God's timing sometimes confounds us. He will do something we weren't expecting, and we say, why did you do that? Or perhaps we've prayed and prayed, and the heavens seem as brass, and we wonder if God can hear us at all. The Jews wondered that, too. They had some legitimate questions to ask of Jehovah. One of the great Christmas carols says, Come thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. And that phrase, long-expected Jesus, is exactly how the Jews had come to feel about the promise of the Messiah. From the very beginning of time, God had promised to send a Savior. Immediately following the fall of the human race into sin, God says, I'm going to send a seed. The seed of the woman is going to come, and he is going to crush the serpent's head. And so God promises this Savior, this Messiah, all the way back in the Garden of Eden. But where was he? Centuries later, God promised Abraham that he would have a son, and that through his son, and his descendants, all the earth would be blessed. But where was he? Several generations after that, the promise was made more specific. A scepter would arise in Judah, meaning that Christ would be born to the tribe of Judah. But where was he? Hundreds of years later, God promised David that One day he would have a son to sit on his throne and that one's reign would be everlasting. But where was he? Still later, the prophet Micah declared that the Messiah would be born in the little village of Bethlehem. But where was he? Thousands of years passed. And there's no sign that the promise of God would be fulfilled. All of that 
was written in the Old Testament, and much more that I haven't mentioned. More and more details revealed as time goes on, and the Jews knew this. They understood the scriptures. They knew what God had promised. Even if they didn't understand it all, even if they couldn't put it all together, it created within them this great desire, a hope and a dream that one day the Messiah would indeed come. God would fulfill the promises which he made to them. How was he was, as the Christmas hymn says, long expected, but where was he? The Old Testament comes to an end with the prophet Malachi, who lived about 430-some years before the coming of Christ. We call the period after that the 400 silent years. That phrase can be misleading, but those centuries were filled with momentous events. There was a lot going on, but they are the silent years because God was not speaking. He was raising up no more prophets. Alexander the Great was coming through, and he was doing a lot of things, but God was not speaking to his people. In that respect, they were silent years. So silent for so long that we might understand if it seemed to the first century Jews that the promise had been forgotten. Paul says, when the fullness of the time came, when the stage was fully set, it was then that God sent forth his son. It was then that the promise was fulfilled. And if we stand back and we look at history, what do we discover about the world in the day when Christ was born? There's a number of ways of looking at this, but let me just throw out some things to you so that we can understand something about what Paul meant when he spoke of the fullness of time. First, it was a time of international peace. For only the second time in the history of the Roman Empire, the empire was not at war anywhere. The great Pax Romana, the Roman peace, was in force, which meant that the entire Mediterranean world was united together under one government. The Roman Empire had built roads that stretched from Rome in all directions. Hence the phrase, all roads lead to Rome. That enabled the gospel message to spread quickly to all parts of the known world. Greek was the common language throughout the empire, which further united people and made it easier for the spread of the gospel. So this, you have this period of international peace under one empire. And because of this, Paul says it was the fullness of time. But it was also a time of great religious transition. Across the Roman Empire, the pagan religions were in decline. There were so many gods in ancient Greece that one writer called Greece one large altar. Judaism was ripe for the Messiah to come. During those 400 silent years, the Jews had migrated to every corner of the ancient world. 
Judaism flourished as Jews built synagogues wherever they went. And since Christianity emerging from Jerusalem was the fulfillment of biblical Judaism, this too prepared the way. Early church worship was modeled after the synagogue worship. Where was the first place the Apostle Paul would go whenever he came into a new city? He'd go to the synagogue. He always began his ministry in the local synagogue, preaching the gospel to his own people. And it was only after they rejected him that he would go to the Gentiles. By the time of Christ, there were Jews at every level of society in the Roman Empire. And many Gentiles knew of the God of Israel. You have Cornelius is just one example of that that we have in, in Scripture. A God-fearer, that is a Gentile who was pursuing the God of Israel and thus being prepared for the revelation of the God of Israel which came in the person of the incarnate Lord Jesus. Looking back, we can see clearly that God had placed his people in strategic positions to help advance the gospel. It was also an era of great moral decline. At the dawning of the first century, the glory of Greece, which had been spread by Alexander the Great, and which had then been appropriated by the succeeding Roman Empire, was fading. The gods of Greece and Rome no, no longer commanded the blind allegiance of the masses. Education, philosophy, art, they created desires that the pagan religions could not fill. In the end, the verdict was clear. Athens produced, Athens could produce Aristotle, Socrates, Euripides, Aristophanes. Rome could produce Seneca, Cicero, Julius Caesar. Tacitus, but the best that man could do was not enough. Nothing could fill that which Augustine would later describe as the God-shaped vacuum within the human heart. Art, literature, poetry, music, architecture, the greatest military machine that the world has ever known, all of it taken together could not provide meaning to life. And it couldn't point the way to lasting forgiveness or offer any answer to those great questions that we all must answer. Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? The decline of the empire had begun, and some could already see it. Even the Roman poets said as much. And the result of this Decline was gross superstition, debased immorality, widespread corruption, evil run amok, and rank unbelief. This is the world into which Christ came. It's the world Paul describes so graphically in Romans chapter 1, a world which knew the truth but suppressed it, a world which ignored the true God and turned to idolatry, it's a world that was given over to paganism and sexual immorality, homosexuality, murder, perversion, dishonesty, brutality. A world of broken promises and a world of broken dreams. 
And into that darkness, God sh shone his light there in a stable in an obscure village called Bethlehem. It was also the fullness of time because it was an age of prophetic fulfillment. What started in Genesis continued through the Old Testament. God promised over and over that he would intervene in history. One day, his promise would be fulfilled. The Messiah would come. And as you begin at Genesis, there is an ever narrowing stream of prophecy, the promises becoming more and more specific until they were fulfilled. The angel came to Zechariah and Elizabeth and then to Mary and to the shepherds, then to the magi in the east who saw the star and knew the king of the Jews had been born. Herod, that evil and sick king tottering on the throne in Jerusalem, he seems to have been caught by surprise. But the scribes weren't. They knew exactly where this child was supposed to be born. And they told him, Bethlehem. So the stage was set for the coming of Christ. It happened just as God said it would. Not too soon, not too late. But in the fullness of time. It was then that God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law. But what if Christ had not come? It's an interesting thought experiment. If Christ had not come, how would the world be different? Just for a moment, imagine that some powerful hand wiped the influence of Christ out of our civilization as a hand would clean a blackboard in a schoolroom back when we had blackboards in schoolrooms. You go to a library and you find no trace of the life or words of Jesus. All has vanished. In the encyclopedias, all the entries concerning Jesus Christ or Christianity, it's all removed. In the museums, great works like the Transfiguration and the Last Supper and Christ on the Cross, where they had been, there is only empty space. The works of the great masters are gone. The great cathedrals have disappeared. Poems of Dante and Milton, Wordsworth, Tennyson, all gone, vanished without a trace. If Christ had not come, Christian hospitals and schools, which have had such a magnificent influence, would all be gone, shaken down by some cosmic earthquake, it would seem. No more great universities, no Oxford, no Cambridge, no Har Harvard, no Yale, no Princeton, However apostate they may be now, the founding purpose of all of those institutions was to advance Christianity. How much of the world would still exist in a state of illiteracy if Christ had not come? 
Much of the world, after all, is literate only because Christian missionaries taught people to read so that they could read the scripture for themselves. For that matter, how many people groups would not even have a written language? If Christ had not come, how much music would be lost? No great hymns, yes, but also the masterworks of geniuses like Bach and Handel, Mozart. No hallelujah chorus. No silent night. No joy to the world. No away in the manger. No grandma got run over by a reindeer. (laughs) If Christ had not come, we wouldn't be here. No churches would, nor would any of the good that they have done for the last 2,000 years. All would be gone, vanished into the mist if Christ had not come. And we're just scratching the surface with this list. But of course, the news is much worse than the loss of these things that I've been able to mention. Far worse. If Christ had not come, the promises of God would be unfulfilled. If Christ had not come, the world would still be in darkness. If Christ had not come, there would be no bridge across the gulf of sin. If Christ had not come, there would be no gospel to believe. If Christ had not come, there would be no hope beyond the grave. If Christ had not come, there would st- we we would all still be lost because there would be no savior for sin. If Christ had not come, there would be no good news to preach to the nations. Listen again to the words of the angel and think about what that means for us. Fear not, for I bring you good news of great joy that shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. If Jesus had not come, there would be no good news. There would be no great joy. But thanks be to God, he did come. When the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? so that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now, what should we take away from all of this? Let me just throw out a few things for you. First, this ought to cause us to marvel at the providence of God. God's providence means that he rules over the affairs of men and nations. As it pleases him, he raises up one ruler, he brings down another. He moves the entire course of history so that all would be ready for the coming of his son. With God, there is no fate No capricious cruelty, no coincidence, nothing ever happens by accident. All things are working together as a part of his eternal plan. So he could coordinate and conduct the universe in such a way as to bring about everything that needs 
to come into place in the fullness of the time. I love the way Charles Spurgeon said it. There are no loose threads in the providence of God. The great clock of the universe keeps good time. Some of us need to hear this. Because we wonder and perhaps secretly fear that God has forgotten us. Perhaps you come to the end of this year with a sense of fear and dread about what the next year will bring. This past year has been difficult for many. Fear not, if I can quote the angel. God's timing is perfect. When the fullness of time had come, he sent forth his son. And when the fullness of time comes in regard to you and your life, he will keep all of his promises. He will be faithful to what he has promised you. Something else that we ought to take away from this is obviously the vast importance of the person himself, Jesus Christ. Surely this is the major point. He is the center of history. History is his story planned and told by God. Secular history can give us dates and times and places and people, but only God gives us meaning. Because it's God who plans history and then brings it about. The birth of Christ is the hinge upon which the door of history swings. He came at the appointed time. Not too early, not too late. This means that the first Christmas miracle started long before Bethlehem. It took place over many centuries as God prepared the world for the coming of his son. And he is the savior for the whole world. There was a Christian leader from China some years ago, C.K. Lee, who was visiting the United States. He was speaking at various churches and colleges and universities. And one day he was speaking in a church in California, and at the conclusion of the message, young college student propounded this question. Why should we export Christianity to China when you have Confucianism in your country? And Lee answered this way. He said there are three reasons. First of all, Confucius was a teacher. Christ is a savior. China needs a savior more than a teacher. In the second place, he said, Confucius is dead and Christ is alive. China needs a living savior. And then finally, he said, in the third place, Confucius is someday going to stand before Christ to be judged by him. China needs to know Christ as savior before she meets him as judge. In the end, All of this is not abstract. It becomes very personal. We all need a Savior. Some of us realize it, but many don't. Christ came so that you could be saved from your sin. This is what Paul goes on to say in verse 5. Why did he come in the fullness of time? So that he might redeem those who were under the law. 
that we might receive the adoption as sons. And Paul there is not just talking about the Mosaic law. He's not just talking about Jews. As he opens up later in the book of Romans and in Ephesians, we are all under the law. Either the written law or the law that has been implanted within us. And because none of us can keep the law, God sent his son to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons, so that we might no longer be the enemies of God, but rather adopted as the children of God. But that only comes through Jesus Christ. So the question comes, what will you do with Jesus this Christmas? One final note. Our text tells us that God sent forth his son. That is, he was moving toward us while we were moving away from him. God sent his son into a world which outside of a few Jews there in Israel didn't know he was coming and didn't care that he had arrived. There was no welcoming committee in Bethlehem aside from a few shepherds. There are those who have the idea that somehow God meets us halfway. We take a step toward God and we hope God will take a step toward us and somehow we're going to meet in the middle. But I have good news for you this Christmas day. And that good news is that God never meets any of us halfway. We don't take a step toward him and then he takes a step toward us. It's not even that you take one step toward him and he takes four steps toward you. Because of our sin, we will never take a step toward him. God always takes the first step and every other step that is required to redeem his people. The good news of Christmas is this. In Christ, God came to us. The journey from heaven to earth was the longest journey anyone has ever taken. That's what it meant for God to send forth his son. No one ever captured the essence of why God sent his son better, I think, than C.S. Lewis, who said the son of God became a son of man so that the sons of man might become the sons of God. That's what Christmas is. He came to where we were that he might lift us up to where he is. He doesn't say, climb up here. That's what every other religion says. That's not what Christ says. He comes down to where we are and he lifts us up to where he is. And that is the miracle of the gospel. That is the greatest Christmas gift. But like every other gift that you may receive this Christmas, the gift of Jesus has to be personally received. In his carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem, Phillips Brooks wrote this. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessing of his heaven. 
No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls still, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. And so he does. And I pray that this may be your experience this Christmas. That by repentance and faith, Jesus Christ, the one who came in the fullness of time, would enter in and make you a child of God. Father, thank you for this greatest of all gifts. Thank you, Father, that you are such a sovereign and providential God and you could orchestrate the details of history to bring about the fullness of time wherein you would send your son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen.